0: Welcome to the podcast of Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. I'm Nathan, and I'm joined by my colleagues Omar and Ashna, and today we will be speaking to Usha Nedarajan, a law and political economy fellow at Yale Law School, and additionally a current senior fellow at the Melbourne Law School. Nadar Rajan's research specializes in 3rd world approaches to environmental international law, and today we wanted to gain her insights on COP27's loss and damage fund, and whether or not such provision serves as an adequate legal framework for combating climate change. Great, so... uh... I'll just start off with a more contextual question which is can you describe how lawyers have attempted to address environmental issues in international law since the 1970s
1: right great question and thank you for your invitation it's a pleasure to talk to you about this so i'm an international lawyer and i do think that international law is an important tool for addressing environmental concerns because the nature of these concerns are that they transcend national borders. International cooperation and international solidarity to deal with these problems is, is crucial. And so, as you said, from the 1970s, there have been treaties trying to do this. Unfortunately, not only have they not worked, they, they, have, they have failed pretty spectacularly. Um, when international lawyers have to explain why you know treaties have not delivered on what they've promised, they usually say, well... The problem is that either we can't make the laws we want to make, because the rich and the poor can't agree on good laws, mainly, well, it's not so much that the rich and the poor can't agree, it's that the rich cause the majority of environmental problems in the world, Um, and they don't want to stop the harm, which people have a lot of power in the world, and they prevent laws being made that require them to change their lifestyles, give up some of that power and all of that. And then the other issue is that there are so many other issues in the world that are equally important. And so those who get to decide what the priorities are might not necessarily always prioritise the environment when when they're making international laws. And and there's a truth to that. And you can see that in the negotiations for loss and damage at every COP. You know, we should blame politicians because they're prioritising all these short-term concerns over, you know, these underlying fundamental concerns like those uh, like environmental issues but lawyers also can't be let off the hook because it's law that structures and enables these economic choices and these political choices and lawyers are actually making this way of life possible by making it very predictable very organized by you know creating these legal frameworks so you know for for many many centuries now lawyers have played this role in contributing to global environmental So we have these environmental treaties, but on the other hand, you know, 500 years of international law contributing to global extractivism, enabling it, normalizing it, structuring it, structuring a world of limitless consumption and limitless waste. International law has helped to do that. We've known that climate change is a problem since about the mid-19th century, that climate change is a thing. And of course, there's a big gap between that and the 1970s, where international organizations started to, to engage with, <laughs> with the issue. And it was only in 1990s that there was the first treaty that was specifically addressing climate change. And that treaty and the Kyoto Protocol under the UNFCC was very much focused on, well, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which we call mitigation, mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. That didn't work the emissions actually increased rapidly. So this then led to a focus by the 2000s towards, well, if mitigation isn't working, then we have to focus on adaptation as international lawyers. The states and people need to adapt to the consequences of climate change because it's happening all around us by the 2000s. So we need to also focus on adaptation, give money, give technical assistance. The states who can do it, the states who have caused this problem should, give help to those who are dealing with the consequences. Now that hasn't worked either because rich states just didn't give the promised money or the technical assistance to help poor states to adapt and then they were also continuing to fail to mitigate their emissions. So that's why we've ended up where we are now. The fourth assessment report of the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, says that there are critical thresholds beyond which some systems may not be able to adapt to changing climate conditions. So when you cannot adapt, then that is loss and damage. So it's it's actually not a very clear distinction in practice, but this is generally what we're talking about in, when we say um, L and D. So loss and damage is supposed to compensate for those harms that are irreversible and that you cannot adapt to, either because it's the type of impact is so bad that you you can't adapt to it, or because you don't have the capacity and resources to adapt to it. And so the fund that um, came up in COP27 is supposed to fill the gap. The thing that we should keep in mind for our conversation is that um, this story of mitigation, adaptation, loss of damage is not very economically rational. It just hasn't played out that way because adaptation is very expensive. It's actually much more expensive than cutting down your emissions. You know, States sort of balk at changing their economy to cut emissions, but that's actually much cheaper than paying for adaptation.
2: Thank you. That's really helpful. How would you say uh, loss and damage compares with the Paris Agreement, specifically Article 8? Does it operate under a different mechanism, or would you say that it's quite related to the Paris Agreement?
1: They're both part of a longer story. There was an alliance of small island states and you know, and, and they, they, they wanted a loss and damage fund. It's an issue that precedes uh, Paris and precedes Kyoto, even. But the first actual um, mechanism was the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. And that happened in COP19 in in 2013. And then by the time we get to Paris, I have a mention of loss and damage, which is good, but it's a very carefully worded provision that avoids any liability, or even regardless of the accept, the refusal to accept liability and compensation, there wasn't any funding mechanism of any sort attached to either WIM or to Paris Article 8. So by the time we get to COP25 in Madrid, we have the G77 in China saying that we need a funding mechanism and we also need a technical body to deal with the issue of loss and damage. Um, And a technical body was created, and that's Santiago Network for Loss and Damage, but the fund was rejected in both COP25 and COP26 because um, developed countries were worried that there was no way to create a fund without admitting legal liability, which they really don't want to do. They refuse to do. COP27, we have the fund, but none of the main decisions have been made in terms of who receives the help, how it's going to work, who's going to... Who's going to be boss of it? How are they going to oversee it? Who's going to contribute to it? What kind of damage qualifies? So there's a committee, a twenty four member committee, fourteen countries from the south, ten from the north, and then they have to prepare the recommendations in time ta- in time for cop twenty eight. So yeah, it's been in the works for a while, but and it's a very important issue. <laughs> But the reason, you know, these decisions, they're important, but they don't seem urgent mainly because it doesn't seem like the money is there, ends up feeling a little bit like we're arguing about something that may or may not actually, there may or may not be contributions to this fund in the future. Because developed countries are going through a very difficult time right now (laughs) with economic recession and cost of living and, and a lot of problems.
2: Loss and damage very clearly isn't a perfect solution, uh, nor is it, I think, anywhere close. And you discuss a little bit in your work, the assumptions related to loss and damage, those being that they can be identified, they can be calculated, they can be compensated, and they're attributable. So could you maybe discuss those assumptions a little bit more, provide our audience with an overview of each assumption and the critiques associated with them?
1: Sure. Sure. Loss and damage in the climate context derives from, in many ways, the, the history of using this as a legal mechanism for redress with negligence and trespass in the tort. So can you do all that? Can you use that legal mechanism from tort's law for climate loss and damage? Does it make sense? Well, partially, yes, but the, there are some really fundamental problems because the scale is different. The nature of the issue is quite different. And of course, it's global. So When climate change happens, how do we know that it's climate change that is to blame and not the distribution of uh, problems in infrastructure, problems in politics, problems in inequality that have actually distributed the harm rather than climate change? (laughs) If there's been a drought for 10 years, but there were always cyclical droughts in the region, these droughts are now more protracted and longer. The government hasn't helped to manage them. On top of that, they, there are other terrible things happening to farmers that you know are making them unable to cope with drought, economic choices, trade choices on seeds and tractors and pesticides and whatever. And then how do we decide, well, this problem is due to climate change and not due to all these other, other factors? There are also broader issues in that. There are also natural cycles of climate change that happen on our planet, and we need to distinguish between what that's doing and what anthropogenic climate change is doing, because we're talking about man-made climate change, when we're talking human-made climate change, when we're talking about loss and damage. So we need to distinguish between those two things. So there are layer upon layer of trickiness, which um, scientists are trying to figure this out, but they are the first to admit that it is not a straightforward thing to figure out. Beyond that, can we calculate? or sectoral approaches, like how much is being lost in fisheries, how much is being lost in agriculture and so on. That's actually not accurate at all because the ecosystem is holistic. And even if we only look at the services it offers to people, the financial worth of a functioning ecosystem is not easy to calculate because it's quite complex. And that's why economists have divided up either sectorally or service by service approach. We're not talking about loss of a job we're talking about loss of countries and loss of cultures and traditions and lives on a big scale loss of your future how do you calculate what that is worth it's a little bit misleading in that sense to compare it with domestic tort law because you have to wonder why we are doing this (laughs) you know quantifying something like this a change like this on the planetary scale we were always under the impression that lawyers could regulate anything, economists could count anything, you know, and politicians could govern anything. And we're going to do that for here, for this as well. Well, um, that has been the type of thinking that has caused these environmental problems.
0: What do you think is an alternative legal framework to loss and damage that would ensure tolerance and fairness in international law? What do you think is a better alternative to the loss and damage fund towards a path seeking actual climate
1: justice? Great question. So one of the reasons why I am not optimistic about this path is that even if everything goes fantastic and there's lots of money, the problem is that fossil fuel companies in rich countries can afford to pay. And and they've done so in the past, right? When they've had to, they will pay to keep emitting. So, it doesn't actually help deal with the problem because we're talking about an extremely unequal world where the attitude of the rich not just to climate change but to environmental problems and other social problems, like vaccines and every other problem is that, well, if we have to, we'll just pay so it's not our problem. So I think that for me, a better legal framework would be to ensure that we you know observe some of the general principles of law that if you do a harm, you have to stop doing it and you have to make restitution for harm done. So that's not just about paying; It's about you have to stop emissions and you have to make restitution, which is not monetary restitution. It is restitution for the harm done. And then you come up against all the issues that I talked about, that what is it that people are actually losing in this process? They're losing actually more than even the state and self-determination. They're losing a sense of international solidarity. They're losing their dignity. So, so much is being lost and that's what has to be uh, restored. And so I would say it has to be a legal mechanism that deals with those things. It doesn't allow states and and corporations to constantly skirt their responsibilities by using market mechanisms that they're best positioned to benefit from. It's not just Article 8, that's also Article 6 of the Paris Agreement and the SDM. You know, that led to market mechanisms to deal with this problem i'm not against them many of them tax carbon tax for instance is a fantastic idea it's just that i don't think that uh, that they may help but they're not going to address the root causes of these issues to address the root causes we need to look at how law has structured and created this problem and if law wants to help undo these problems then it requires a changing of the basic structures of law because right now legal systems are heavily extractivist and they're not going to change by creating a loss and damage mechanism they're going to change by rethinking what the purpose of things like contracts and property and torts and land law and all of that so one of the ways that my colleagues and i have tried to do this is through the locating nature project which we published a book about a few months ago where we just you know take central principles of law and think about how we can remake them in a ecologically just way and we're not alone in doing this because there are cultures all over the world doing this right now and that have been for millennia but now they have no choice they have to do it changes in local laws are happening um, all over the global south and in some parts of the global north and sometimes it's very local but we just want to find out about them and and we think that there can be inspiration there for international change as well.
0: Finally, for maybe a more uh, practical uh, question, of course, um, uh, many listeners are of this podcast will be uh, young legal professionals and uh, law students. And we're just wondering if you could provide some insight or advice to young lawyers and legal professionals.
1: For sure. I mean... One thing that I always tell my students is that I don't want them to feel powerless in this conversation, because often when you learn the history and you learn the contemporary politics, you feel like the odds are insurmountable, but they're not, and it's especially not for a law student, because you're getting trained in a skill that has created this problem and you can dismantle it. I mean, you're getting very specialized training here. So I would say that as you go through law school, learn about the politics of lawmaking, And so participate in it knowledgeably. You should learn the doctrine, of course, not just to pass your exams, but because it's useful to, you know, for, for this project of climate justice, you do need to learn the doctrine and you do need to learn the rules of legal argument. But more than that, you need to learn more. You need to learn who made these laws. When did they make it? Why did they make it then? So that's the politics of law. And this will allow you to participate in the politics of law. The skills that we learn we're not just trained in legal argument, but we are trained in this intuition about finding the truth. And that we're—I think that lawyers are quite well trained in, you know, spotting <laughs> PS quite easily. It's not saying that it's going to be easy to figure out new ways of lawmaking. It first and foremost requires a new way of understanding ourselves and our place in the world. And if you go through your life sort of stuck in the matrix of globalized capitalism, you'll be alienated from yourself and from your society and from nature. How can I operate in it using all these tools that I've gained, not in the way that I'm supposed to operate, but in the exact opposite, because I have these powerful tools now. And then it comes down to, like I said, that we are part of nature and it is part of us. So yeah, I hope students learn that.
2: Thank you so, so much for joining us today, all the way from Amman on this Friday. really really appreciate all the insight that uh that you provided
1: not at all it's my pleasure